Uh, now, last week, uh, if you were here or watching online, we, we talked about uh, self-control. One of the last things that uh, Paul talks about when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there's one fruit, and in the fruit of the Spirit, we've talked about love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, goodness. And, and I've always, uh, and throughout the Sundays, I've come up and, and I've confessed to you that each week, seems really hard to talk about, especially as someone who needs to teach on it, because each week there's something that I feel like I've failed at, whether it's to love somebody, whether it's to find joy in something, especially in the recent days, when I lack gentleness. And last week, I really felt this because I was like, Man, I'm supposed to teach and preach on self-control when it's the very week I feel like I lost it, this element of self-control. And I don't know about you, but any time we see these words of Jesus, whether it's in the Beatitudes or whether it's Paul in the Fruit of the Spirit, that if you are walking in line with Jesus... If you are walking in line with the Spirit, these are the things that you should do. This is the way that you should live. This is the way that you should show up. And oftentimes when we fail to do that, we oftentimes resort to this feeling of guilt and shame. Just a few days ago, uh, a few days before that, I was preaching on self-control. I didn't want to talk about it on that Sunday because it was a little too fresh. Uh, but now I can, and I can almost laugh about it. Uh, for those of you that have known me for a while, you know that I'm, I like to do active things. I like active sports. I've done CrossFit for a long time. Uh, shout out to Tilt Shift CrossFit, uh, where I've been going for, for, a, for a while now. Uh, but I've also been in martial arts, uh, for those of you that know, and, and particularly around Bra- this art called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's basically like grappling and wrestling and and so uh, a few days before that Sunday, I, I was training with somebody, a teammate of mine, a good friend of mine, actually. Uh, and as we were wrestling and grappling and whatever it is, both of us are on the competitive side. And again, if you know me, you know that it, it, sometimes I can be quite competitive. And, and we were going back and forth in our sparring, in our training session, and, and as one person got a little bit more aggressive, uh, then the other person got a little bit aggressive. And, and as things got elevated, it got elevated in the, in the other person. I mean, we've all done this, even in our verbal arguments and even with conflict with others, that one thing leads to another, leads to another. It's this vicious cycle uh, of, of conflict, and that's what was happening. And I remember things got so heated between us. We were training as if we were worst enemies at this point, as if we wanted to actually rip each other's heads off. And finally, the coach had to come in and stop us. And I'll never forget it. He said, both of you are out of control right now. And immediately I thought, how ironic is that? Right before this, this practice, I was working on my sermon on self-control, and an hour later, here I am being yelled at, saying, hey, you've lost self-control. And it was so bad, and this is a pastor's confession, it was so bad that the coach asked both of us that evening to go home early. Right? It felt like I, was, my, I got sent home from, by a teacher or something, and so... I, we both left. 
Uh, and I was in my car, and in my car I had way too much time to think because I was driving home, and I was thinking, man, what in the world just happened? And I couldn't help but the fact that I was working on this sermon and, and, and unpacking what it means to have self-control, especially being guided by the Spirit, and I absolutely did not do that. And, and suddenly I felt this sense of failure and shame and what some would call imposter syndrome. Like, I'm a pastor. I, I'm teaching people how to do this, and I'm reading the Bible and seeing what Jesus has to say about this and how Jesus lived, and I should be more self-controlled and, and practice the, the fruit of the Spirit and, and the Beatitudes and all that thing and all those things. And, and yet I felt like such a failure, like even a hypocrite. And I remember walking inside the house, and Maria uh, was surprised, and she's like, what are you doing home like an hour and a half early? And shamefully, I had to say, I got sent home. And she like, laughed, like, what? What do you mean you got sent home? As if I got in trouble at school, and, and I told her what happened. And, and I can laugh about it now. It's funny, but I just, the feeling that I felt was, there was really no better word than this word, shame shame. And as we talk about what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes and about what Paul talks about in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, if we're being honest, these are pretty high standards. You should love. You should be joyful. You should be kind. You should be patient. You should be faithful and gentle and have self-control. And to make matters worse, and this is really what Jesus emphasizes too, you should practice all those things, especially with the people that you deem as enemies. I mean, it's easy to love the ones you love, at least most of the time. It's, it's easy to be joyful when things are going well, right? It's easy to have self-control when there's nothing testing your emotions uh, or your temper or whatever it is. It's, it's easy to be patient, right, when there's nothing to make you impatient. But yet, Jesus' challenge, and Paul being aligned with that, is saying, even in the hardest moments, even when you're dealing with the hardest people that you can deal with, those are the very and precise moments that you should be practicing the fruit of the Spirit. And yet, oftentimes, we fail. Maybe you failed just this morning on your drive over. Maybe it was this morning at home with a loved one. I mean, think about the last time you failed at loving somebody well. Think about the last time you weren't patient or you lost control or that you weren't gentle with the other. And perhaps it was actually the closest person to you because you know exactly how to press that button and to get under their skin. Think about the last time maybe it wasn't that you failed somebody, but maybe something you did where you felt like a failure. And perhaps whatever that action is or was, it was perhaps behind closed doors. And although nobody in the world knows what you've done, you know. And as you walk around with a smile on your face, deep down you're feeling so much regret, guilt, shame. And I would submit to you that many of us, if not all of us, we have certain 
skeletons in our closets. Maybe it's feelings that you have towards somebody that you never revealed. Maybe it's a particular addiction that you may not have exposed. Maybe it's past things that you've done or behavior or actions that if you could turn back time that you would absolutely 100% have not done what you've done. We have those moments. We have those things that cause us to feel this utter shame. And I feel like in the last few weeks, I've been kind of picking on Peter, uh, throughout, especially throughout this series. And maybe it's because I'm projecting my own self, and I feel like I can resonate with this man, Peter, in the Bible. And if we take a look uh, at what's happening in the text that we read, Jesus is about to be arrested, and he's about to be crucified on a cross. He's about to be put to death. But right before that, Jesus and his disciples celebrate Passover. So one last thing that Jesus wanted to do with his friends, and Passover is what we celebrate even today, is what we call communion, the Eucharist. Jesus wanted to, and felt important to, uh, break bread with his, with his closest friends. And, and during that time of not only communion, but breaking of bread and having this meal together, this Passover meal, Jesus is having a hard conversation with his friends, and he says, while they're eating, in a way to ruin the moment, Jesus, he says, you know, in the next few hours, all of you will desert me in one way or the other. <clears throat> Here it says in Matthew 26, he says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters because of me on this night. And again, this is when they were celebrating the Passover meal before Jesus is about to be crucified. Uh, and it says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In verse 32, it says, But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Here's what Peter says. I, I love Peter's attitude. He says, Though all become deserters, be, though all might be deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die, even if I die, I will not deny you. And so said all his disciples. I mean, look at Peter's, I would even say, confidence, even arrogance about how committed he is to Jesus. In fact, it's so much so that the way he presents it is almost offensive. <laughs> Jesus says at this dinner, hey, you know what? I'm just going to tell you the truth. At some point, and, and, and my guess is he's talking about Gethsemane when everyone fell asleep and didn't pray with Jesus, when Jesus asked him to. Jesus says, at some point, all of you, my friends, my best friends, you will desert me. And Peter has the audacity. And how awkward is that? In front of the people that were, it wasn't even a private conversation. At least be sensitive to, to be like, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? Hey, don't worry. I'm good. I'm not going to desert you. Instead, in front of everybody, he says, hey, all these people, they will probably desert you. You're right. They will desert you. But me... No way. No way. I will go to you even if it costs me my life. I will stay loyal to you. I will never, ever leave you or forsake you or deny you. <clears throat> and Jesus' response is, is, is ironic because he says, 
you know, some of you all might desert me simply by not being able to stay awake and to pray as if I asked, uh, uh, like I asked you to. But you, Peter, <clears throat> not only will you not pray, but you are actually going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times you will pretend not to know me. You will abandon me. And just a few verses after that, after Jesus says that, after Peter says, no way, then Jesus is indeed arrested. And we get to the text that we read, that Peter denies Jesus three times. And it wasn't just the spur of the moment. Hey, do you know Jesus? No way. Hey, are you sure? No. Are you triple sure? No, I don't. It wasn't like that. In fact, the author, Matthew and Luke, says had some, some time had passed or even an hour had passed. So there's moments where he had time to think. And yet, even in his moments of thinking, of, of getting a bigger picture of what's happening, each time when someone asks them, do you know Jesus, he denies Jesus and says, no, I do not know this person. And when we get back to Luke, these verses give, gives me chills. It says this. It says, the Lord turned around. So this is after Peter denied Jesus three times, three times. After him saying, no way, I'll go to you to my death. No way, I love you. These people, they'll deny you, but I will never forsake. No way. Jesus gets arrested. He's being carried away. And he says, that the, Luke, the author says this, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that look would have been like. Jesus is walking away and he just looks at Peter. Now to imagine their eyes locked. They just had eye contact. And then each knew what was happening. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter, from that look, remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to him, <clears throat> and this is verse 62, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And, verse, and then the end of 62 says this. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. I mean, that look, just thinking about that, again, gives me chills, gives me, gives me goosebumps. And, and I love the author, Luke, says he wept bitterly. Now, this word wept is the same word that is used all throughout the New Testament when someone dies, when someone's in mourning and they're grieving. And it's usually uh, this <clears throat> understanding of not just crying like you're shedding a few tears, but you are wailing. Another word for this word wept is wailing. And it says bitterly. Hey, essentially, this is a moment that Peter felt so bad, and I would imagine so much shame that he started just wailing bitterly. In other words, have you ever done like things were so hard or something was so tragic that you ugly cried, right? It's just a term that I've heard before and people use, and I've done it before. It's not just shedding tears. It's not just crying. It's not just a shake of the chin. I mean, we've all seen that. It is like just outbursts, just ugly crying. We've all done it. Oftentimes, we just need to do it. And Peter, that's where Peter was at. And I don't want you to miss this part. In verse 62, it says, 
before he wept bitterly, that he went out. And that's important to understand. He went outside. Now, we don't know what that means. If he left the temple area, if he left uh, where people were able to visually see him, we don't know. But many would argue that the point is he went out because he didn't want to be seen. He felt the shame that many of us have felt in our lives. Perhaps he felt unworthy. Perhaps he felt like a failure. After my gym incident, I'll be honest, I haven't been back since. It's been 10 days, and that's very unusual. And I've been telling my coaches and my friends and even Maria, just, hey, you know what, I'm just, I need a little bit of a mental break, or I've been busy. But the reality is, it's almost as if I don't want to be seen because of what I did and what we did, and I just felt this sense of unworthiness and like I fail, like I'm a hypocrite. And, and I haven't been in because, again, maybe it's like Peter. I, I, he, he doesn't want to be seen. He wants to feel this shame. He's crying uh, he, bitterly, and he doesn't want anyone to be around because then he will be seen and he will be known. And for many of you, if you've dealt with shame before, that's exactly what you don't want. You don't want to be seen. You don't want to be acknowledged. You don't even want to be around people oftentimes. I feel like I resonate with that. But what I think is extremely helpful, and this is some stuff that I got from one of the authors I talked about, talk about all the time. Uh, her name is Dr. Brene Brown, who's an author, professor of psychology, a professing Christian. And if you've never seen her TED Talk on vulnerability, it's, it's several years old now, but it is the most watched uh, TED Talk in all of TED Talk history. And so uh, you can find that on YouTube, and it's extremely good and important. And, and what I find extremely important of what Dr. Brene Brown does is she makes a distinction uh, found in her own research in shame, what she calls shame resilience theory. Uh, she describes the difference between shame and guilt. The difference between shame and guilt. And oftentimes it's shame that we gravitate towards. Shame that pushes us outside of community. Keeps us isolated emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, spiritually. Uh, the shame that where we just don't want to be seen because we know what we've done. We know what we've said. We know how we treated people. And we just don't want to be exposed. And so we hide in our cave, whatever that cave might be. That's what shame does. That's what oftentimes we gravitate to. But Dr. Brene Brown is saying that there's a difference, actually, and it's an important difference between shame and guilt. In her research, Dr. Brown says that uh, guilt is something that we've done. It's something that we've done. Shame is who we are. So guilt is something that we've done, and shame is who we are. Guilt says... I did something that was bad. Shame says, I am bad. Let me say that again. Guilt says, I did. Notice the difference. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. I am inherently bad. And I truly believe this is so important because it breaks down this dichotomy of either 
feeling shame or feeling completely desensitized of what we've done that caused the shame or the guilt in the first place. Because I would argue in the Christian life, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, I would submit to you that guilt can be another way of describing the movement of the Holy Spirit. Many times we call this conviction. And it can be a gift. Now this conviction through the Holy Spirit isn't an indictment of who you are. That would be impossible because the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, the triune God, has already told you who you are. You are a child of God who God is well pleased with, who God loves you. Period. That's it. That That is who you are. And so what the Holy Spirit does doesn't shame us, <clears throat> but perhaps uses guilt, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. conviction, to show us that there is a better way to live. It can be an absolute gift. Don't ignore it. Don't be desensitized. I remember several years ago, I was a chaplain. I tell the stories of my chaplaincy a lot because it was such a big part of my life. And I remember it was like the first week of chaplaincy at this trauma center, a big hospital in L.A. And I was seeing people get sick. And I was seeing people dying. In fact, that was part of my job. It was was the patients that I saw were only the patients that were either going through a really difficult time, a really difficult diagnosis, or death. And I remember talking to a doctor that I built a friendship with, and, and I asked him, I was like, you've been doing this for so long. How, how do you deal with this? I, I've been going home literally crying on my drive home because of what I've seen and what I've experienced. And I'll never forget what he says. He says, Prentice, this is part of my job, and sometimes you just you have to get used to it. You have to get used to it. And I get that. Part of what he does and what other healthcare professionals do, I totally get that. And that's part of the job. But for me, I didn't feel right about that, especially because I wasn't a physician. I wasn't a nurse or anything. I was, I was there as a chaplain. So my prayer that night was, was, God, please do not ever let me get used to that. God, may my heart break every single time. Because it's a gift. That's the way that the Holy Spirit moves. And so when we talk about the things that we've done that that has brought us shame, may we understand this, this difference. There's actually a difference between shame and feeling guilt. God has already told you who you are, even though shame tries to rob you of that. Guilt says, you know what, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to treat somebody. There's a better way forward. And that's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. While shame makes you run away, guilt can actually bring purpose. Guilt can be from the Holy Spirit. Shame can be from Satan. Guilt can be a gift because it can bring humility. Remember when Peter was like, you know what? He, he leaned on his own, his own arrogance, his own competency, and he said, you know what? These other dudes, they, they're going to fail you, but no way, not me. But when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, when we feel like we 
did something that was outside of God's intended purposes, outside of God's will, when we hurt somebody, whether we hurt ourselves or our loved ones, God can use that to bring us to humility. Guilt can birth humility. Guilt through the Holy Spirit can birth empathy and compassion. It can bring wisdom. I hate to say this, but I bet there are things that you uh, have done in your life that you would consider mistakes. But because of those mistakes, and because you've listened to the spirits, the conviction, you have learned from it. And I also hate saying this, but there may be things in your life that if you didn't experience those mistakes, or maybe mistakes from other people, that you would not know what you know today. Because God uses conviction. God uses this tool of of guilt sometimes, not to put you in a cave or in a hole, but in ways to say, you know what, there's a better way to live. And I love what it says in Luke chapter 22. It says, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And when you have returned back, Jesus is talking about his failure. And he says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers and sisters. When God convicts us through the Holy Spirit, the ways that we have failed, it's not to remove us as a child of God, but to use that to strengthen others. And I love Jesus' response. Now, there's a correlation, many theologians believe, and I, and I would say this too. There's a, there's a correlation between Peter's three denials. And later when Jesus dies, he resurrects and he comes back to, for a brief moment to visit his friends. Uh, he asks, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? I love this. Listen to this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, really, I mean, he's proven otherwise at some moments. Jesus said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him for the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, I love what Jesus does here. Jesus always creates space for redemption. Because Jesus uses the things that maybe bring us guilt, maybe the the things that we've done wrong, maybe the things that we've fallen short of, whatever that might be, Jesus always creates an opportunity for redemption. And even though Peter denies him three times, Jesus symbolically asks him three times, do you love me? Three times. And he says, yes, yes, yes. And at the end of it all, Jesus says, you are Peter. You are the one who I will build my church upon. 
I think that is so amazing to see. See, oftentimes we count ourselves out because of the things that we've done. And that's because we gravitate more towards shame. This is who I am. I can never again do this. I can never again say that. I can never again pursue that path. Because now I'm defined by the mistakes that I've made in my life. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. You are not defined by your mistakes, by your history, by all the wrong that you've done. Because I've already named you. I've already given you a time. You've already been adopted as my son, as my daughter, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. And there's nothing that can stray you away from that. There's nothing. It says there's no mountain high. There's no valley. There's nothing. Nothing that can take my love away from you. And so may we, as we think about and take an inventory of the ways that we have failed, especially as we've talked about the fruit of the Spirit, may you know that you are still worthy, that you are still a child of God. And the guilt that you might feel is a gift. It's a good thing. Pay attention to it. God is saying there's another way to do this. And there's always a pathway back. And may we extend that, by the way, that pathway back to others. And as I I invite the worship team back up here, as we we take a moment to reflect and to to pray, and as we take communion together, I just want to say this. Jesus always provides us a way for a way back. May we provide that for others. We live in a culture where there's so much division and polarization. We live in a culture where we're so quick to, dare I say, cancel people. And, and I get that there's a level of accountability that needs to be held, especially in a world where we're recognizing more injustices, especially in the systems that we live in. And I think that's right, and I think that's good, and I think we need to continue to tell the truth. But to eliminate any pathway back, whether it's your worst enemy, whether it's someone who has deeply hurt you, is antithetical to the gospel. Because the gospel says there's always a way back. And for all of us, that's good news. There is a way back. And so may we think about what God is saying to us. May we not not be deceived by the lies of Satan that tells us we are worthless, that our life and our identity is based upon the mistakes that we've made. No, 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 no. The cross of Jesus says otherwise. And Jesus says, it is finished. And so if you have this, or whether you're at home, if you have your cup and cracker or bread or whatever it is, let's let's first, before we take it, let's take it out. And and maybe we just need to take a moment in our own self-inventory, whether, again, you're at home or whether you're here. Maybe it's time in in the quietness of your own heart to confess the ways that we have failed to live out the fruits of the Spirit. And we ask for God's forgiveness.
and we ask for God's redemption, and we ask for God to show us what it looks like to live a better life and go about it a better way. Can we just take maybe 30 seconds to do that in the quietness of our own hearts before we take communion? Let's take that inventory.